Win the battle of your musty, damp basement with an easy breathe ventilation system. Take charge of your indoor air. It's easy with basement ventilation to remove musty odors, pollutants, allergens, and airborne particles by 85%. An easy breathe ventilation system creates air exchanges for cleaner, fresher, healthy indoor air. And right now, get $250 off your own easy breathe ventilation system. Call 866-822-7328 or visit takechargeofyouair.com today. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Here's my shoulder for you to lean on with everything. Hey, I'm AJ. Welcome to Really Good Shares. This is a show about recovery and how to be a better person and how to have proper perspective. The idea for this came from The Small Bow. That's a newsletter I founded when I got out of rehab. I realized there were recovery stories out there that I just wasn't finding anywhere. I'd have conversations with friends dealing with all sorts of different life stuff. Grief, ego, identity crisis, personal disasters. And they'd say something that helped me think about my own life differently. These kinds of stories were just as important to me as going to therapy and doing 12-step work, but I wasn't hearing them there. So that was the idea behind the newsletter, to honestly share the hard parts of trying to get better. And in this podcast, I want to expand the definition of recovery and talk with people about hard things they've gone through, even if they haven't figured it all out yet. You'll hear a mix of interviews, newsletter reflections, and storytelling contributions about making it through hard times. And you'll hear some music from my friend, the legendary soul singer, Swamp Dog. More on that later. But this is not a 12-step podcast. It's not just about people who've had drug or alcohol misuse problems. It's also for people who suffer from issues related to love, sex, food, debt, codependency, inadequacy, trauma, Anything that's bringing you down, weirdos, wasteoids, whatever, whatever, is I'm psyched you're here. But I'm not an expert. I can only talk about my own experience. So in this show, we're going to be talking with people who have helped me in my own recovery, who've helped me understand that even though I've stopped using drugs and alcohol, I still have a ways to go to become different, like truly different. Sometimes in 12-step rooms, when I hear something that I think is really powerful, there's a cliche that says you see those people, you want what they have in their sobriety. But the way they live their lives is something that I really want. I want to be like them. I want to be at ease with myself. I want to be able to make decisions clear-headed. I want to be able to basically act and not react. So when I hear something that makes me want to change and be a better human— That's what I consider a really good share. It's something that I'll hear and then I'll take with me for the rest of the day. 
and take with me for the rest of my life, basically. So this is episode one. And I want you to meet one of the first people who made me understand that I was truly lacking. And not in a dark, envious way, but in a way that made me want to do better. I was in a courthouse in Florida watching my friend get cross-examined when I thought, I, I want what she has. Why was I in court? You might already know, but just in case, I published a portion of Hulk Hogan's sex tape. Now, to understand where my head was at, I have to tell you a little bit about the Gawker-Hulk Hogan trial. To be clear, I don't want to, but my early recovery and the trial were both linked together. And because of that, the trial will come up occasionally, only as much as necessary. So let's just get this out of the way. Now, when I took over as Gawker's editor in 2012, I don't think I had a very firm grasp on the person I was. I knew the role I was supposed to play at that job, and I was a pretty good blog editor for that particular place at that particular time. I look back at some of my editorial decisions during that time, and I went. I mean, I regret them, of course. But also, I'm, I'm still in the process of figuring out why I made them. Because I remember my worst decisions as Gawker editor weren't ones I felt okay about or felt entitled to. I knew some of them were wrong and would cause some serious discomfort, if not actual real-life trauma. That was part of the job, I thought. I mean, I'd first heard about the existence of the Hulk Hogan sex tape on TMZ. It was a minor story. It was just another celebrity sex tape in an era full of them. But because other outlets had already published stories about the tape, including screenshots from it, that in itself made it quote-unquote newsworthy. So as far as our editorial choice to report about what had become known as the Hulk Hogan sex tape scandal, I felt confident that we could report on it. What about the should? The issue of should I post this always gnawed at me. I was publicly defiant and could probably make an argument for why I published some what I'll call ethically challenged posts. But as I said earlier, I felt terrible about some of the people I'd hurt with the stories I ran on both Deadspin and Gawker. But to be honest, I, I thought Hulk could handle it. And by the time we got to the trial, that didn't matter. Hulk had a team of lawyers who had enough evidence to prove that Gawker invaded its privacy and caused him emotional distress. Plus, and this is a big part of how insane this all is, billionaire Peter Thiel was bankrolling Hulk's entire lawsuit. Thiel, and I mean this as a compliment as much as it can be, is one of the scariest men on the planet due to his wealth and political ideologies. And Gawker is going to pay for all of it since. Hogan's lawyers arguing this isn't about Hogan's morals, but Gawker's, putting its very culture on trial. What were they thinking? What was the reasoning behind well, Dan, it? I what was the context? I actually think it's more about publicity versus the free press. Wouldn't it be a little tricky with a jury playing that? Absolutely. Look, it's, it's going to be a hard argument for a jury. One juror said you have no heart, no soul, that it's all about the almighty dollar and it's sick. I think it's a fascinating case. Yeah, so, yeah. That, that it is. Yeah. All right. The whole trial was bad. Everyone involved either looked bad or was bad on both sides. And this was a huge trial. And I did not meet this moment in any way, shape, or form. I was one of the worst witnesses in history. But what really stuck out to me was watching my friend Emma on the stand. Because I thought, here was one good person in a room full of bad people. 
I was the lead defendant in this case. And Emma, who had been my deputy editor, was unfortunately a witness. And in the end, Gawker lost the case and lost big. The $115 million judgment bankrupted the company. And between the deposition and the trial, I decided to get sober. And I was very newly sober when I was in that courtroom. Like, if you're familiar with early sobriety, you know how exposed you feel. So being in the trial was not great for me. It was like I'd had reconstructive knee surgery and then two weeks later decided to join a roller derby league. When I came home from rehab, my apartment was a mess. Just a room full of dead plants, dirty furniture, and messy bookshelves. It looked like a museum of failure. And then, just a few weeks later, I had to pack my bags and fly to Florida for that goddamn trial. So yeah, it was a tough year. The trial, the early recovery, the deep financial trouble, the public humiliation. I said it felt like I got hit by a truck. And again, my friend Emma was there as a witness. She had to answer a set of even more difficult questions on the stand than I did. But where I flailed and stammered, Emma handled herself. Oh, and also, this is one of Emma's first public outings since she'd experienced another traumatic event. When she was actually hit by a truck. Six months before this, she couldn't walk. Like, her lower half of her body was smushed. But there she was, sitting up on the stand, and Emma was just as unprepared for the size of this trial as I was. But she nailed it. You received no formal training before you became managing editor of Gawker.com? I wouldn't say formal training, as I said. I think I received informal training, uh, conversations with AJ about the work that I'd be doing, the staff I'd be overseeing, and how I could best fill that role. My question is, you received no formal training to be editor, uh, managing editor, correct? That's correct. Your only training was on the job? Yes, as in many fields, uh, I learned on the job. Uh, all right, and the next question is, have you in the past, or do you, have an intimate relation with either Mr. Delario or Mr. Benton? No. <sighs> in case you missed that, the implication was that Emma might have slept her way into her job as managing editor of Gawker. But still, she kept her cool. I, I just thought it was incredible. She seemed emotionally indestructible. I mean, how could I get that? I thought this trial was the biggest deal, and then Emma made it feel like a minor footnote, like less than minor footnote. So that's why I wanted to have Emma on. I mean, I want what she had, but I feel like everybody would want what she has. I mean, I don't know how she got through that whole entire ordeal. It still baffles me. Who wouldn't want to be like that? I never talked with Emmett about any of this before, but I want to know so much of how she got through this. So we talked about the trial and her accident, how she made sense of the experience. And you might hear a dog Bix being all noisy in the background, but let me just give you an idea of how bad this accident was. The night of the accident, Emma was driving with her cousin in Connecticut on her way to a bachelorette party when they had some car trouble. She can tell you the rest. So we were in this car accident after we had been trying to drive to Rhode Island for a bachelorette party. I had this terrible old car. We'd gotten a flat tire. We were coming over the Q Bridge in New Haven. It's not music but the sound I associate with this moment is Ira Glass's voice, because we were listening to This American Life. <laughs> in our program, we have stories of people in situations um, that are fraught, 
difficult. And my cousin noticed that we were being honked at and someone behind us was flashing their lights. She looked back and said, I think the car is on fire. And I could see blue flames coming out of the back of the car. And we're on a bridge, there's no breakdown lane. But the idea of staying in a moving, burning car seemed like a worse idea than pulling over. (laughs) So that's what we did. And then the person who was behind us flashing their lights was this pretty amazing guy named James. He pulled over, put his like hazard lights on, then immediately got out of his truck. He ran towards the car with a fire extinguisher and put out the fire. You know, we were in an active lane on 95. The moment that I felt we were probably okay is we we were seeing these 18-wheelers come over the bridge and shift lanes because they saw James's truck. Um, And at some point, this teenager came along and didn't, didn't look up from his phone or whatever he was doing and hit the truck. And that's what hit us. So he must have been flying. <laughs> that's crazy, right? Emma was actually run over by a truck. Well, pinned by one, which might even be worse. Part of the thing they do is they create basically like sim recreations of the car accident. <laughs> and so there's like this really like twisted... <laughs> Like, sim recreation of Molly and I getting hit. There's, like, blood and everything. It's like, and you sort of see us do, like, the noodle. <laughs> I don't remember this, but when we were both on our, like, gurneys about to go into our first surgery, apparently we were next to each other. Uh, they brought us to say hello, and we both had this attitude of, like, well, what the fuck is going to happen next? Like, <laughs> like what... What else can this night throw at us, you know? And I do think that attitude was, like, extremely important and sustaining, which is, like, okay, we're completely fucked up from the waist down, but, like, (laughs) we're on good, you know, we're on the good painkillers and we're in the same hospital, and that's nice, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But the truly bad moment of that year was, like, looking down and seeing a broken, bloody body and then going into shock. I mean, Emma's always been tough. I remember being impressed by her self-assurance when I first hired her at Deadspin. But you can't recover from getting squished by a truck with just poise. Emma had to do a lot of work before she showed up to testify in Florida. She had to learn to walk again. And the six months before the trial were the most grueling. I think I had, like, no sense of the timeline. They just date stuff, right? So it's like, when you, you know when your next surgery is, and, like, you know when you'll graduate to a wheelchair or when you can sit up in bed or when you can get your catheter out, you know, whatever. I think I like really focus on them in terms of like organizing the year ahead of me, like making sense of it. I mean, my leg was covered in rods and gauze for a while. Yeah, no, I saw that. Yeah, you saw that. Yeah, yeah. I remember just like looking at it and being like, I don't think she's gonna walk normally ever. I mean, there were like swords going through it. (laughs) Just the rods were just so big. Yeah. I do remember the the day they took everything off after that and seeing the scar for the first time. And it just didn't look like a part of my body. It was like twice the size what it should be, which I think adds to that feeling of like, it feels like an object that has like (laughs) gotten the shit taken out of it and put back in. 
I remember the first day I sat up in bed or like put my leg down, like off the bed. And I remember that that felt like massive progress and like it completely wiped me out and took me out and I was sobbing and sweating and all these things. So I think those steps felt like achievable things that I was working towards. I showed up to Florida thinking that the little amount of sobriety I'd achieved had significantly changed me. It hadn't really though. I mean, I looked a little cleaner and my teeth were a little whiter and I was working out and stuff, but those exterior parts were the extent of it. Emma changed. I think that I, what I was not quite aware of um, at the time, and like, I don't think I have a handle on it yet either, is just like, <laughs> I mean, there are entire books written about this, so it's not <laughs> on me to like to understand perfectly. But like, I think the brain reorganization part of it, or just the fundamental shift in like the person that I would be, did not make sense. It was not something I could visualize or understand. And I, I also, honestly, like, I do wonder if, if that had been the only thing I had to deal with that year, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, you know, maybe I'd be a slightly person today now still. Um, but it is true that, like, by the time I was starting to walk again without crutches, this relationship I had been in for a long time, like, fell apart around me. I forgot about the breakup. So I remember went through the crash, relearning how to walk, and then a breakup, all before the trial. No wonder she mentions brain reorganization. I mean, I think that's what struck me when I saw Emma testifying, how gracefully she was handling all these big changes. And here I was just starting my own transformation, but much more clumsily. Emma was like this visible evidence that even at your lowest, you can return. But seeing her, I realized... I, I have no idea how to do this. Like, why was I having such a hard time with less than 10 circumstances? Like, I felt like I'd missed a class about how to survive traumatic stuff without being a total wimp about it. And uh, talking with Emma for this episode, I also completely forgot about the race cars. St. Petersburg race fans, are you ready? We were there during the annual Firestone Grand Prix, which is this huge IndyCar event in St. Petersburg. One part of the race was right across the street from the hotel where we were cooped up. So Emma was right next to IndyCars going 150 miles an hour all day long. The entire time during the day, all you hear is what sounds like Imagine a microphone on a bee's nest. <laughs> That's what the background noise was. It also was the first time since the car accident that I had gone anywhere on my own, gotten around without the aid of anything, um, stayed in a hotel room, you know, not to get surgery the next day, like that kind of thing. It was a surreal time. So AJ was in court every day. I was just waiting to testify. So I was in the hotel room. Um, and then sometimes going up to like the suite that the lawyers were in to have meetings and stuff. Listening to stock cars zoom. I'm not kidding. 10 feet from the hotel. It went directly past the hotel. <laughs> I, for some reason, the stock car noise, I think it was the thing that like almost pushed me over the edge in terms of like this, how surreal it was and just how on edge it felt, you know? I always think of that. 
Emma told me this felt like the last impossible thing to survive in a really difficult to survive year. She had always considered herself unflappable. And that's how I viewed her too. But in the year between the accident and the trial, she was tested. I think that when you survive really bad shit, you like go into an unofficial club of like people who understand what it's like to survive really bad shit and people who don't. And I also think it resets your scale for what you can handle and like for what actually is truly bad. I came into this wanting to talk with Emma about how she got through this trial right after the accident. But while we were talking, she told me something else I'd totally forgotten about. I think it truly shows how strong she is, probably even more so than everything else. I was in court all day, and Emma was just stuck in the hotel. So I gave her the keys to my rental car, not even considering that was the first time she'd driven since the accident. So what was that like? I can't imagine what was going through her head when she was driving. So I asked her to write a little bit about that. And when I heard what you're about to hear, I finally learned what it takes to heal and move on. You just gotta go through it. Here's Emma Carmichael's really good share. For a few months after the accident, I couldn't go anywhere in a car without taking something like an Ativan or a Xanax first. I felt really on edge most of the time, but especially so in cars, like I was waiting for the next loud noise to rearrange everything. But I also felt really determined to get back to my old life where I could go dancing or take a drive upstate with friends or even just take a shower on my own. I really wanted to feel independent again. When the Hogan trial came around, I had just gone through this pretty awful breakup and I still felt like people in my life were capital C concerned about me. The trip to St. Petersburg did not feel like a vacation. It really wasn't, but it was my first opportunity to go somewhere on my own, completely unaided, in almost a year. There was no nurse, there was no walker, no painkillers. It was just me and a suitcase in a strange city I'd never been to and hopefully would never visit again. I was fully sequestered before my testimony, so I couldn't really work since I was running Jezebel, a news outlet at the time. And my days were empty in this kind of luxurious way. A friend who had gone to college in the area he told me about a place called Fort DeSoto Park, which is this public park with these pristine white sand beaches on the Keys just south of the city. And a beach day, it really seemed like a normal thing a normal person might do on a normal trip to Florida. I was not really a normal person. I had acute post-traumatic stress disorder, and I had almost three pounds of metal in my left leg. And this really was not a normal trip to Florida. But I was intent on proving to myself that I could do things I had once done without thinking. On my second or third day in the city, I borrowed AJ's rental car, picked up some beers and a huge sandwich from Publix, and I got behind the wheel of a car for the first time in almost a year. I remember merging onto the highway and I felt like I was playing this weird trick on myself, like I was doing an impersonation of someone who was comfortable driving. It was midday and there weren't a lot of cars on the road, but I stayed in the right lane anyway. I was driving cautiously and below the speed limit. I felt super aware of how small and vulnerable I was, but I don't think I really felt scared. Mostly I felt alone and capable again in a way I hadn't for many, many months. I put the windows down, I blasted the radio, tried to let go of myself. The route took me down the Pinellas Bayway, and as it swung south, I realized the Bayway was actually mostly a series of bridges that stretched into the horizon, connecting one key to another over this beautiful aqua marine water. 
When my cousin and I were pinned by the truck, we were on the Q Bridge in New Haven, Connecticut. And the only thing that kept us from dropping off the bridge into the water below was the cement jersey barrier that we were crushed against. I don't remember if there were breakdown lanes on the Pinellas, but it's something I notice basically every time I drive over a bridge now. If there had been breakdown lanes on the Q Bridge, my cousin and I probably wouldn't have been hurt. I made it over the Pinellas Bridges, and it felt like this private, pointless triumph after a year of requisite dependency. I spent a few hours at Fort DeSoto, which was beautiful. I exposed my scarred, numb leg to sunlight and salt water for the first time. There was a group of college kids there, maybe blowing off class for the afternoon. They were just kind of goofing off in the water and drinking. I floated on my back in gentle waves and listened in on their nonchalance. And I read my book, I drank a couple beers. These were things I thought a normal me might do on a normal day at the beach. And after a while, I drove back to the hotel. That year was really the first of my life where everything truly bad happened. <laughs> And all at once. I almost died. I had this terrible breakup. We went to trial. The company fell apart. It was just like this series of reset and restart moments, one after another. I think it toughened me in a way that is sometimes really hard, makes me sad to think about. There is this hardness there. But I'm also really proud of that quality and of my survival. It makes me durable. Listening to him, I realized here's the biggest difference between us. I would not get into a car that wasn't mine and drive on a highway in a new city after a traffic accident that almost killed me. I'd be terrified. I'd probably take me a year to drive around the block and definitely not around any other vehicles, especially trucks. So am I durable now? I think I'm better and more equipped to handle surprises and adversity, but the one thing I need to be better about is just not complaining. Or more importantly, not blaming other people when bad things happen to me. In order to truly change, I have to do an impersonation of someone who's ready to do the hard things. So that's the goal of this show. I want to talk to people who are helping me in my own transformation. Some of them are friends of mine, and some of them have suffered and struggled through their own things. But they've become better people because of it. And my hope is you don't have to experience life-altering trauma to get something from this show. You will experience things you're not prepared for in life. I'm certain of that. Things that change you. So we hope that the show can give you some company along the way. Oh, and one more thing. In difficult times, there's always a song that you latch on to. Uh, music plays a real role in recovery that we don't always talk about. But at different times, different songs hold the ideas I return to and need to hear. So every episode, we're going to be getting some backup from my friend Swamp Dog. And he's going to play us out at the end of each episode. Welcome to Really Good Shares. The next episode, we'll hear from my first sober friend, author James Fry, about this one really bad day he had. It was when Oprah Winfrey asked him if he was going to kill himself. Please come back and check it out. And now, here's Swamp Dog. Swamp Dog.
They say everything can be replaced They say every distance is not near So I remember every face of every man who put me here I see my light come shining from the west down to the east any day now any day now Really Good Shares is hosted by me, A.J. Delario, produced by Julian Willer, Jackie Huntington, and Jessica Kreinchich, with production assistance from Lindsay Hoffman. Our theme music is Everything You'll Ever Need by Swamp Dog. In this episode, Swamp Dog covered I Shall Be Released by Bob Dylan. Additional music this episode is by Julian Willer. Our executive producers are myself and Julian Willer. Special thanks to Mangesh Hatigater and Bethann Macaluso, Thanks again to Emma Carmichael. If you liked what you heard here, check out thesmallbow.com. That's B-O-W as in bow and arrow. Uh, cool. We'll be back next week with book author, an entrepreneur, and outlaw, James Fry. Win the battle of your musty, damp basement with an easy-breathe ventilation system. Take charge of your indoor air. It's easy with basement ventilation to remove musty odors, pollutants, allergens, and airborne particles by 85%. An easy-breathe ventilation system creates air exchanges for cleaner, fresher, healthy indoor air. And right now, get $250 off your own easy-breathe ventilation system. Call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com today. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Boston Proper is for women who love distinctive style in styles that don't define them. Boston Proper designs are unique and made to fit flawlessly. Confident women wear Boston Proper as an expression of who they are with chic, polished styling and unforgettable looks that get noticed anytime, every day, and on any occasion. When you want that certain something in everything you wear, wear Boston Proper. Shop at bostonproper.com and wear it like no one else.